Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. I'm Cheryl White with the Neighborhood House Association in San Diego, California, and excited about today's episode, Nonprofits Serving and Enduring Amidst the Pandemic. We're going to continue with our case study on Neighborhood House Association. So I want to welcome to today's show, uh, Mr. Rudolph Johnson, the third president and CEO. Hello. Yes. How are you? Thank you for having me back. Uh, Thank you for being back and for really being our sponsor and the power behind us having Leadership Matters. So it's always a pleasure, Rudy, to have you um, share with us. So again, thank you so much. And then also with us today, we have Dwight Smith, General Counsel and General Manager of LEGO at the Neighborhood House Association. Hello, Dr. White. Good to be here. Glad to have you. And then also delighted to have Damon Carson, General Manager of Education, Instruction, uh, and, um, and Operations. And Damon is also the Chairman of the Board for the National Head Start Association. Damon, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Dr. White. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So we are going to continue the conversation that we had back in November. I know we are in a different space uh, that we were uh, back then, but just kind of continuing the case study and as such, we'll kind of review and refresh some of the information we covered previously, as well as add where the agency is today as relates to operating during these uh, challenging times. So, um, Rudy, I'll throw it out to you first and just have you share, you know, when the pandemic hit in the state of California initially shut down and we have these stay-at-home orders What were your initial thoughts and what did you do? Well, the initial thought process was to protect as many jobs as we possibly could inside our organization, knowing that this was going to be a tough stretch for most uh, Americans, including our employees. And so we quickly worked with all of our general managers and particularly Dwight Smith and um, Damon Carson, who's on the phone with me today, as well as um, Dr. Mona Minton. And we um, looked at addressing our circumstances with our federal, state, and local um, funders. And um, as a result of that, we were able to protect about 96% of our payroll over the past year. Um, And the reason why our personnel was first and foremost is because, as you know, Doc, we can't be any good to the 25,000 San Diegans we serve a year uh, through our 25-plus programs if we can't save jobs for the individuals that perform those tasks on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, well said, Rudy. And then just kind of stepping back and and maybe even um, sharing uh, from that space, I know you said you were able to um, really um, save like 96% of the employee base. How many employees does Neighborhood House Association have? So we're at 801 and counting. 
uh, full-time equivalents. Um, we have some part-time uh, employees. In fact, Mr. Smith could probably help with, help with the number of part-timers. And then um, we also have plenty of volunteers through our Parent Policy Council, et cetera, that works um, alongside of us each day. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So how did you go about avoiding having to lay off employees? Well, you know, as, as you know, it's a daily struggle. This pandemic is fluid, um, and we'll get more into that as we go. But again, the first step was just communicating with our funder base, um, ensuring that the tasks that we were responsible for performing as essential workers were able to be performed safely using all the PPE equipment, you know, all of the COVID protocols, et cetera, making sure our facilities were uh, safe um, to enter, um, and then going through our protocols um, as we were out on the front line uh, delivering services. And then, um, you know, finally, um, ensuring that we didn't miss any of our marks in terms of our outcomes that the funders wanted to see as a result of our new way of doing business, which may be telelearning, teleservices, um, et cetera. And in a lot of cases, we're still on the front line delivering um, in-person services to our clientele. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the agency really had to be um – as best as possible in a very reactive situation, very proactive and nimble. Absolutely, Doc. And and it's still changing. The fluidity is ever present. I mean, you know, six months ago looks different than today. Um, You know, everything looks different than when we first got the um, directive from the governor's office, March 13, 2020, to shut down. So it's still fluid with the vaccine process coming online, et cetera. Um, and, and really waiting for individuals to be vaccinated versus individuals that prefer not to, you know, kind of what's that going to look like from an operational perspective. Um, so uh, again, just remaining, uh, flexible, staying, trying to stay ahead of the curve and not drop the ball in terms of the services that we're responsible for. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. And then, Dwight, I know that lots of pivoting going on. So lots of, um, uh, in our organization, many service lines continuing to be open and in others, maybe they're coming back on board. But I think throughout, whether they continued or uh, rather they're reopening and and getting their services underway, I'm sure there are liabilities that needed to be considered. So when we think about this from a legal perspective, uh, what are the business liabilities that employers need to be concerned with as they make decisions to either continue to provide services or uh, resume providing services amidst this um, time with this pandemic going on, this COVID-19 well, thank you, Dr. White. That, that's a great question. You know, with respect to liability uh, that business entities have to be concerned about, but basically before any liability can attach, uh, there must be a violation of some duty owed to the employee or to the customer. So in the uh, employment employee uh, world, 
we typically see since April, there have been claims related to COVID surrounding disability and leave accommodation, a discrimination, harassment, retaliation and whistleblowing, you know, the wage and hour component of employees working remotely, and really just the workplace uh, safety conditions as well. Uh, but generally, you know, in, in this environment, employers must have a safe reopening plan. I mean, that's the main thing you need to have in order to comply with the OSHA regulation. OSHA applies to most private employers um, in the U US, you know, Occupational Safety and Health Administration Act. They have an obligation imposed upon employers who must ensure that the workplace is free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. So in this COVID environment, we all are aware of the dangers of COVID. So that's the most challenging risk. I think employers today must, you know, pivot like you mentioned and modify their policies and put in appropriate policies to address that unique concern today. Mm-hmm. Great. So I know Neighborhood House Association, we've had our own um, protocols that have been put in place with regards to mitigation and certain areas are requiring um, some testing where uh, employees are opting into the uh, in-person direct services to clients. What do employers need to consider and what are, you know, what can an employer state with regards to can employees be required to engage in testing or other safety-related protocols that an employer may um, put in place? Well, absolutely. You know, if we keep in mind of the obligation that OSHA imposes to maintain a safe workplace, uh, it naturally follows that the employer can impose and put in uh, safety screening mechanisms to make certain that uh, basically that there are no uh, unsafe conditions in the workplace. So uh, even recently, the EEOC has uh, confirmed with the frequently asked question guidelines that an employer may impose temperature checks and viral tests. They are permissible as a screening tool to use during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the employers must use the screening steps to determine if the employees entering the workplace have COVID-19 because an individual with the virus will pose a direct threat to the health and um, illness of others. So, so screening checks can be done. Uh, we mentioned, you know, temperature, just the typical questions that you ask. Um, all these are permissible provided it's done in a non-discriminatory manner. It's job related, you know, consistent with business necessity. And uh, really, it's even further supported if it's based upon a recommendation from the CDC or other local public health authority about testing, temperature checks, screening questions of that nature. Okay, great. Thank you. And then as Rudy indicated, you know, things are definitely evolving um, day to day, week to week. And I think since the last time we had a conversation on this on the air, uh, vaccinations have become something that is um, you know, everybody's interested in, and certainly many are just delighted to see that that is um, something that is now available. What can employers um, expect? How can they um, incorporate that, or can they incorporate that into their planning with regards to return to work? Well, a vaccination in contrast to testing are two separate things. Mm -hmm. uh, 
employers and many people recommend vaccinations, but right now it's not mandatory. I believe under the protocol that the multiple uh, immunizations were approved, they're under the emergency protocol, so it cannot be mandated at this time. But mm -hmm. I think we should expect to uh, see maybe more regulation in this field. I think an employer can really just encourage individuals to seek out the right choice for themselves, provide transparent information. People should be aware of the pros and cons. But as a general rule, I think um, it is nothing that an employer can impose, but it's something that many employees are recommending mm -hmm. uh, in order for the workplace to continue in a safe mode. Mm -hmm. Great. And then from the employee perspective, I know that, um, you know, uh, we did do at Neighborhood House and think about case study, the, um, the COVID-19 survey to kind of hear from our employees what they were thinking and experiencing and um, their concern for their own safety and the um, safety of their families. So from the perspective of what employees' responsibilities are in helping to ensure that the environment is safe, are there some responsibilities that employees must bear? Yeah, we all share uh, equal responsibility for making a workplace safe. You know, employees have to follow the protocol, like all company policies, our health and safety policies, you know, supplemented by a COVID uh, workplace prevention plan. That's just a policy that all employees have to follow. Um, so like wearing masks, for a while, um, there was guidance that you didn't need a mask. Now we're double masking. So, um, you know, employees also have a responsibility to make certain that they are safe. Um, so, so there are many things that the, employees, the employee is responsible for. You know, if you're sick, stay home, self-quarantine. If you are um, unable to do your job, you know, speak to your employer. Maybe there's a transfer or an accommodation can be made for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then if an employee sees other individuals or managers not complying with the safety and health regulations, it's their obligation to inform management, right? Because we want everyone to be responsible for everyone else, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are just some general things to be mindful of what's going on in the workplace, to be aware of what the policies are. And, you know, if you have questions, you know, legitimate questions, seek them out and ask for anything that you may need to make your job safer. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know I was um, really pleased in our uh, employee survey to see like, gosh, like 98% of employees are all like, yes, masks should be required. <laughs> Everybody, we're on the same page with regards to ensuring that the mitigation efforts and, and uh, standards that were put in place were followed. Um, do I just ask you one other question before I jump over to um, Damon? Wondering with regards to employees um, that may feel like it's not safe to return to work, even once protocols are put in place and, uh, you know, things are underway. What if an employee says, gosh, I don't really feel safe returning to work? You know, that's such an important question because it's really how you perceive your workplace has a great impact on how you perform your job. So um, management needs to be receptive to employees' concerns. The, the general rule is that basically uh, an employer cannot discriminate 
against an employee who refuses in good faith uh, because they're concerned about exposing himself or herself to dangerous conditions in the workplace. This has to be a reasonable belief, not just I have a general fear. A general fear is not enough. Again, also age by itself, just because you're in one of those suspect classifications or um, high risk categories, um, that by itself is not a reason for you to uh, refuse. But if you do have a good faith concern about the workplace condition, it is an employee's right to stop and bring the situation to management's attention and really participate in an interactive conversation about, well, how can we make this job safer? What is it that you feel is unsafe about this position? And through that process, um, you know, morale will increase and employees can go about their task fully that they are protected by management and supported by management and, and do a good job at their task. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dwight. Rudy or um, Dwight, um, I'm sorry, Rudy or Damon, anything you'd like to add to what um, Dwight just shared? And if not, I will um, ask you, Damon. Um, Rudy, I think I saw a light shine on your area. Were you, were you about to say something? No, I was just I was just about to defer to Damon because I know, you know, we stood up a couple operations now. I don't know if Damon had anything to to say about that or not. Yeah, you know, in fact, Damon, I was going to ask you to just share, you know, the types of services that were set up and offered to our early Head Start and Head Start children and parents. Well, well, it really. Um, began once um, COVID put an abrupt end to our traditional program model. And, and so one of the first things that, that really dawned upon us is that we weren't able to, um, because of COVID, we weren't able to provide a critical service that, that working parents need, and that's uh, childcare and early education. Um, our, our programs, put parents in a position to go to work each and every day. So, so with the abrupt closures um, due to COVID, we had to figure out um, one, how we would inform parents of the short notice, you know, in a matter of hours, we were gonna close our locations. Um, and, and then you start to think about uh, how you're gonna keep your families engaged and connected to you um, in, in hopes that at a certain point during the pandemic, you would get to a place where you could resume some, some things that are similar to your traditional services. Um, so, so before we started to open childcare locations, uh, we had to keep engagement with, with our families. And we did that through a number of different measures, um, primarily the, the distribution or the shift, well, let me say the shift to more of a distance learning program and, and providing parents and children with the resources to stay connected. And that's everything from educational materials, uh, kind of your hard classroom supplies and things like that to uh, uh, devices, devices, i.e. laptops or tablets. Uh, with educational software so children can continue to learn um, why we were, you know, figuring out how we were going to 
offer services through the pandemic. Um, you know, almost immediately, um, we started to think about reopening plans and, and came up with probably five or six or seven different versions of, of how we would reopen and what it would look like. Uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to have uh, two locations that are currently operating, but they're, as you can imagine, they're operating under, um, you know, a, a voluminous amount of, of protocols as it relates to mitigating COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the things were, were, were spoke to earlier about what we had to do to, to supply PPE, set up testing programs, but more importantly, uh, make staff feel comfortable to return to the classroom, and equally as important, make parents feel comfortable to return into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so, Damon, uh, in thinking and looking at both of those, having parents as well as the um, staff and children feeling comfortable returning to the classroom, what were some of the things that were done to achieve that? Well, I think the, the, the first thing was to make ourselves available as a, as a leadership team to parents. You know, um, parents would call me, would text me, would email me. Um, directly and, and I will respond. But we also set up, you know, uh, electronic messaging systems to, to uh, call parents and email parents and let them know what our protocols would look like, what we were working on, and, and, and just, you know, provide communications to let them know where we were at, you know, on this journey towards reopening. But I think most importantly, it was it was being available and being responsive to parents and staff for their questions and concerns. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Damon. And, and a little bit, I'm going to ask you just maybe to share more um, details regarding our protocols. But Rudy, let me invite you back in and just have you share. Um, how did you go about ensuring um, the safety of employees and clients uh, during this time, and I'm thinking more agency-wide as opposed to uh, just our Head Start program? Well, you know, it goes back to what Dwight just uh, said. You know, as an employer, we have the responsibility to, uh, number one, write uh, reopening plans for each one of the facilities that were operable from headquarters out into the field. Um, you know, we have booklets on uh, reopening and, and, and COVID measures that and protocols that we implement. Um, but to take it a step further, you know, we talked a little bit about the two operations inside a Head Start. Uh, testing protocols <clears throat> was a huge part of that uh, for me to get comfortable as the president and CEO, uh, not only of the staff, but also the students. Um, that protocol is every seven to 10 days, depending on your level of activity with the virus <clears throat> present. Um, we've also set up um, one and in, in are expecting a second, uh, what I call open testing day for any employee that wants to know his or her status. Um, we, the company, pick up the tab for our employees to come in and get themselves tested so at least they know um, if they're infected by the virus or not um, at that moment in time. 
We have all of our PPE equipment, everything from masking uh, to gloves. We sanitize our facilities. And then we have temperature checks electronically um, at every single doorway um, at our corporate offices. So uh, we've taken a lot of time, effort, and thought um, into protecting our employees. And I'll say this, uh, we meet every single week uh, to kind of workshop what's going on around the organization with respect to um, our COVID-19 efforts and protecting our employee base. And I'm on every one of those meetings that I can possibly make. Okay. Um, yes, I and I, I know you are. And your um, leadership during this time has just been um, really invaluable and appreciated with regards to just looking about or seeing about things that may not otherwise be um, thought of. And as I say that, I'll ask you to maybe think about were there some things that, you know, in the midst of the storm, you may not have realized um, in the beginning, you know, some blind spots that were discovered along the way uh, that you began to see clearer and clearer as we move down the uh, path. Yeah, you want me to answer that now? Um, yeah. Or you want me to, mm -hmm. okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing, and I think we spoke about this in um, part one of this conversation, was I didn't realize all of the back-of-house activity that went along with um, a partial closing of your facilities. And what I mean by that is, although you can farm out a lot of the duties um, outside of your corporate headquarters and allow employees to kind of do home-based uh, work and activities, you still have to pay them. They're still ordering product. You're still moving contracts, which means, you know, legal has to be in. It means uh, fiscal has to come in. HR has to come in. Safety has to come in. Um, procurement has to come in. Damon folks have to come in to process reports. And I wasn't, that wasn't on my radar screen when we got the message from the governor to shut down on March 13th of 2020. The other thing was, you know, and we haven't talked about it much. I'm sure we're going to speak about it in a minute. Is this, this, um, you know, meeting of, uh, COVID safety protocols and immunization, right? And folks feeling like once I get immunized, um, I'm, I'm pretty much protected. And I, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying this is what happens on our property, but the thought process is I don't need to be tested anymore. I can walk around without a mask. I don't have to wash my hands as frequently. And nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, we're tightening those restrictions and reminding folks, even if you've been immunized, we still want you to do these things because we don't know the full effect of the immunization um, process. And so we're moving in, when I said fluid, we're moving into another phase of the pandemic where you may have 50% in your organization has been immunized, 50% still going through COVID protocols when they come to work. Um, so that's another difficult thing to manage. And then the last thing, 
is is really just the amount of information that you have to digest. I mean, you know, I, I kidded with the team a year ago. We don't have any medical doctors on board, uh, but, you know, we're all getting up to speed pretty quick on COVID-19 and we're educating each other inside of those meetings. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, um, Rudy. We're going to uh, move to a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll look to maybe share more with regards to the specifics that were put in place, um, the COVID-19 mitigation measures, those things that helped create a sense of uh, safety and um, preparation and more of a sense of certainty that we would not have um, COVID outbreaks and so on and so forth. And we could move safely back into some um, in-person classroom care and instruction as well. So please stay with us. We'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf, features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. Trends in global business are changing all the time. It used to only be worrying about your competitor across the street, but now that competitor may be across the world. On Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, we discuss the trends in global business, plus issues and solutions that business leaders face today. Each show is guaranteed to teach you something that you didn't know before about global business. Listen live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, 
please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. And we're back with more on Leadership Matters. I'm Cheryl White, and I'm delighted today uh, to have Rudolph A. Johnson III, President and CEO of Neighborhood House Association, Dwight Smith, General Counsel and General Manager of Legal at the Neighborhood House Association, and Damon Carson, General Manager of Education, Instruction, and Operations at Neighborhood House Association, as well as the Chairman of the Board for the National Head Start Association. So again, welcome back uh, to each of you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So Rudy, I wanna go back and just ask you to maybe um, share any other thoughts with regards to the COVID-19 mitigation measures that have been established um, that anyone else looking to um, engage in the operating under or reopening might consider? Well, I guess three things come to mind. And, and on the third, I'll punt to the general counsel. He's a little bit more um, uh, adapt to speaking to some of the contractual issues um, than, than I am. And I can chime in after that. But the first thing is that um, – you know, thanks to you, Dr. White, um, reminding us that, um, you know, oximeters um, may be part of the uh, solution um, for um, kind of our check down process and protocols um, as individuals are coming uh, to and from our facilities. And, um, you know, we set aside some funding uh, internally to ensure that everyone who wanted one uh, could uh, acquire one. And so um, we're hoping that our employees are using those meters, checking their uh, oxygen level in their blood system um, to um, potentially uh, see if there are any warnings or indications that um, they may be infected. That's number one. Number two, um, just maintaining the um, deep cleaning day. You know, every Friday we deep clean office space and I believe it's Wednesdays we deep clean the classroom space. Um, and that's been helpful because if you've had any transmission of virus, uh, you want to make sure that not only do you have the ventilation, but you're deep cleaning Um in between times that the the kids and teachers come back into the classroom. And then lastly, just um, managing the contract with uh, whatever health uh, entity uh, you partner with to uh, run all the testing protocols. Because, I mean, there's a lot involved there. There's collection of samples, analyzing samples, uh, communicating samples to the agency, communicating to the individual, and doing that every seven to ten days has been pretty exhaustive. So I'll put a pin in it and let um, our good general counsel talk about um, contracting with these uh, medical institutions. Perfect. Yeah, as uh, you know, Mr. Johnson indicated, um, 
we have been trying to make certain we address employees' concerns. Many fears are born out of just not knowing what the status is. So one of the most important things uh, the executive leadership team came to understand is that if people knew their status, then that would alleviate the concern about COVID in the workplace. We were able to uh, reach out to a, a prominent medical facility here in, in San Diego uh, and arrange for testing to be done for our specific groups of employees, teachers, students who are in one of our various bubbles. Um, what we found is that we were better able to alleviate fears. We were also had a better idea of what was actually going on in our workplace. If there was any contraction of the virus, we were able to identify if it was within the workplace or outside the workplace and gave us further verification and validation that the protocols we had in place were actually very effective. Uh, so that contract with a medical hospital was very important. Uh, these tests are not cheap, but we were able to spend that extra money to make certain employees have that feeling of comfort. Another thing we were able to do is learn from those who have done it well. We all heard about the success of the NBA. We heard about using oximeters and other proximity measures that were very effective of, of controlling the spread of COVID. So we didn't just go by the blueprint of OSHA, physical distancing, signage on the door, sanitation, proper ventilation, physical barriers, double masking. We went beyond that because we wanted to always provide excellence. So we learned from those who have been stellar at that. And little things like oximeter, you know, employees didn't have a feeling of control or they can determine in their own personal space, safety and privacy of their home, what their baseline is. And what we've learned from doing the science or reading about the science is that your oxygen level saturation of your cells is one of the first indications even for a temperature check or dizziness or whatever, that you may have some compromise. So it really is our really, really early first alert. We didn't have to do that, but we wanted to get ahead of the curve. We wanted to make certain employees not only heard that we're doing all we can for them, but we show them by giving them devices, telling them how to use these devices. So so all these things are just very helpful to make certain our injury prevention plans, safety protocols are understood by their employees. We get their feedback of what they feel they need and just dispel a lot of myths and urban legends about what's going on. Cause there's so much of that still going on. But when you hear what our situation is, I think employees are able to perform their job without, you know, really undue worry about contracting the virus at work. Wonderful. Thank you, Dwight. And I, and I think also that the um, stats really, um, I think, prove out that, you know, um, having the pleasure of, of getting from HR the, the data, which really shows that, you know, we've had employees um, and others that have been in our orbit that have had um, COVID, but they did not contract it at work. And we were um, great at having mitigation strategies in place to where we have had zero um, out of the 69 individuals who we know have been in our space that have had COVID. We've had none of those transactions or some transmissions come from contact at work. So I think that speaks um, really positively of the mitigation strategies that have been put in place.
Yeah, it was a bold move, I, I would say, to do those things. Uh, you know, the the, um, the testing, uh, the bubble, because, you know, once the employer knows what's going on, you know, we can better inform and, and modify and adjust our protocol and policy. So, you know, without that feedback, you're still just operating in the dark. But when we know that employees are being tested, when they are transparent about, well, this is something that came from home or whatever, it just really gives us greater confidence that we can move forward and make certain that the students and our children and our families can continue to re receive our services without risk of us injuring them with this COVID that may be out in our community. Yeah, you know, and I'll underscore your um, going above and beyond, I, I think, uh, with safety even establishing for individuals that were in low um, uh, exposure situations, wearing a three-ply mask, we didn't have to do that. And those that were in, in higher exposure, wearing a KN95, so not just saying mask up, but really providing quality mask based on exposure and that education that goes along with that and putting that in the um, safety briefings. I think all those things have worked very, very well together. Damon, let's have you jump back in here, just maybe speak a little bit more of um, what's happened in your shop relative to preparing for this transition uh, that, we, that we have underway at, at work. Now we actually have two sites that are fully operating. So when I say fully operating, at least they have a component of in-person going on. No, that's correct. And I, and I think you've heard about, you know, some of the some of the what I call surrounding measures that we put in place, you know, the testing, the oximeters and, and things like that. Um, however, you know, when it comes to the actual facility, I, I think it really starts with kind of assessing the current status of your facility, everything from the airflow to how much usable space you have. You know, you need to take that into consideration in terms of being able to keep folks separate. I think it's very important that, that groups inside of classrooms don't mix. So having adequate, adequate space to, you know, keep people apart is critical, as well as some of the additional measures with the kind of the no touch, you know, the no touch dispensers of hand sanitizer, uh, no touch dispensers of paper towels and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, additional uh, spot cleaning measures to, to make sure handles and doorknobs are clean, you know, we are dealing with young children who have a tendency to grab things and sometimes put them in their mouths and actually want to share with, with their friends or, and or adults. So spot cleaning is very important. Um, as well as, you know, just limiting the number of people that you have in the environment. So limiting uh, visitations or, or visitors and, and reducing class sizes. Um, we spent a lot of time as a as a as an educational team, kind of rehearsing the day, if you will, um, really playing out the day, uh, what it would look like, and how we would respond to different things that that occurred during the day. So that's you know planning and rehearsing the the drop off and pickup of children, mm -hmm. um, planning the meal service uh, for children. Um, planning how we would, um, you know, transition to nap time and, and wake children up after nap. So we spent a lot of time really uh, rehearsing our day. 
Um, you know, we, we learned a lot. We obviously learned a lot um, each and every day about different situations. Um, I, one thing that comes to mind is, is, is really we were excited to have children in the classroom and, and we were excited they would have opportunities to play on the playground and go outside. What we weren't ready for is the overwhelming excitement of children to get outside on the play equipment. And having to separate the groups was, was difficult for us because all the children wanted to play with one another at one time. So we had to figure out a schedule on how to have small groups of children um, access the playground, you know, and sometimes it didn't happen with their friends, but, but just really planning and rehearsing the day and using that and, and using, you know, really the day or the previous day to, to kind of shape uh, or how you will operate moving forward. So we learned a lot from just, you know, going through the experience. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you, uh, Damon. I appreciate that. You know, I know Neighborhood House Association serves, as well as employs, a large uh, population of people of color, both, you know, the uh, population of our um, Hispanic population and African-American populations have been disproportionately hit hard by COVID-19. Uh, Rudy, how has that impacted or did that impact your decision-making during these times? You know, absolutely. We pride ourselves on being culturally competent. Um, I'll be the expert on every culture, mm-hmm. um, but I do have lived experience, right? Um, in terms of, you know, having or living in an environment of many, many disparities, right? So coming from a world of, dis- of, of disparate, you know, odds and data. So what I've tried to do, Doc, and you've been in the room, is process the data that's coming to me, like any president and CEO, but being a cultural competency hat on in saying, knowing that, you know, 50-some-odd percent of our workforce is Hispanic, 29% or thereabout is African-American. You know, that's almost 80% of our workforce um, that may view uh, these protocols and situations different. And um, when we sit around that table, we reflect the community that we serve. That's the other thing. We have a very diverse leadership team. And I think we all um, have great input. And we make a decision that really benefits um, our entire workforce because we, as a leadership team, look similar to our uh, workforce. So um, that's how I deal with it. And, you know, to get into specifics, I mean, you know, uh, vaccination, you know, um, the vaccine um, process is rolling out. We've had conversations about, how the communities of color are very reluctant to take the vaccine. And I think what you're going to see over time, if you're not already seeing it, is that most of the folks that live in communities that we're serving, they're probably not going to readily and voluntarily go out and get uh, vaccinated. So we have to think through our strategies and protocols as we're continuing to serve those communities. So uh, that's just a tidbit about how we're assessing our data and making our decisions. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Rudy. Um, Dwight, any final thoughts um, from yourself with regards to lessons learned or just tips you might offer? Yeah, a, a great lesson is for like any emergency. Uh, you must be prepared to act and take care of your own without clear guidance from authorities. You know, like an earthquake, like they say, hey, have three days of supply of water, food and clothing, whatever. This is not much different with this pandemic. I think what I took away from this is that, you know, medical science and legal principles by their nature lag the reality of what's actually taking place in the workplace and community. Science and law require verification and legislation, which takes time. But so for this reason, employees must really be able to operate with the clear principle that guide them to what is best for the employee, right? So with that framework, everything we do, we don't have to wait for legislation or for medical science. We just think, well, what would be the safest thing to do for this employee within the extent we are able to keep them employed? So I think with that mindset, to be always searching for what is best in the situation, uh, that's, a, that's a tool and skill that will mm -hmm. always serve us well in any situation, any emergency. Mm, I love that. That resonates as just being um, so consistent with what you said earlier with regards to that commitment to excellence and also just um, aligned with ethics, helping to make the world better, fairer, and more humane and doing so in such a way where you always are thinking uh, what's best and not what's the minimum we can get away with, but really what's best uh, to position our employees and our community um, as we uh, engage in service. Damon, how about for yourself, any final thoughts or um, tips you'd like to offer? Well, I just have to say uh, you and Dwight did an excellent job of kind of summing up, you know, how you establish a culture of trust um, inside your organization. But through the pandemic, you know, um, I've, I've learned, um, I've, I've developed more skills around uh, flexibility and patience mm. um, because it is an ever-changing event. Um, no two days look the same. Um, I've also learned to be more uh, attentive to the needs of those who are on the front line and, and those that are really doing the hard, critical work. It's important for me to, to make myself available to them, to, to hear from them and understand what their needs are. And then it's up to me to do what I can to provide, to meet those needs, to provide them with the materials, tools, and resources uh, in order for them to be successful, safe and successful in their daily work. But mm -hmm. I've learned a lot through the pandemic. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. And how about yourself, Rudy? Any final uh, thoughts or tips you might add? Wow, where do I start? Um, you know, I, first of all, I've learned that I didn't learn that I had a great team. I knew I had a great team, but this reinforces our ability to think our way through complex issues and problems. Um, so who you surround yourself with matters. And on top of that, I would highly recommend that you have a very diverse leadership team. Although we struggle at times as a leadership team, like any leadership team, it, it is important to have different perspectives around the table, different learned and life experiences, 
because I think you come away with better decision-making. And in the midst of a pandemic is so evident. And um, we could have probably written a case study just on how we went about making decisions through the pandemic because you have so many different, um, you know, life experiences coming to the table and reflecting on that decision. I would also say if you're reporting to a policy body, keep, you know, them informed and stay in front of them um, and ensure that you're taking their input as well because they're probably curious as to what's going on inside the agency because they um, have so much energy and um, indebtedness to the agency. It's a passion of theirs. They want to make sure the agency is responding correctly to uh, the latest and greatest information. And finally, I would say, you know, not only check on your employees on the front line as Damon appropriately put that, I would say also on your clients that you're serving out there as well and just make sure they're doing okay because they don't always get the latest and greatest information uh, and oftentimes we're educating our client base. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you um, to all three of you. Thank you so much, Dwight and Damon and Rudy, for just spending this time with us and sharing um, your experience and expertise. Very much appreciated. And thank you also to our listening audience. Please join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Leadership Matters. Informing leaders, inspiring solutions. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter. Matter.